You know, talk about cleaning house. You know, it took a little bit of time to clean this house this morning. Um, I was thinking about this earlier this week based on the passage we're going to look at. And I started thinking when it comes to cleaning houses, it, it doesn't matter even if we were living in a studio apartment type thing. It's, it's too big, right? The house is too big. When it comes to cleaning, you just you don't feel like doing it sometimes. There's a lot of work to, to put in. How would you like to, to clean a big house? Like a humongous house. I started thinking about that. What, what's probably the biggest house in our country? So I thought, figuratively, if you look at it in terms of structure and in terms of numbers, I'd say probably the U.S. House of Representatives. Right? That's a pretty big house. Uh, do they keep it clean? You know, I've been in there before. They do a pretty good job for such a big house. But is it clean ethically? Is it clean morally? Is it clean politically? And I think even they would say, uh, we're struggling. The Republicans felt that it was the Democrats' fault until they became the majority. Then they felt maybe it was the Republicans' fault. Um, and they're kind of fighting each other and all this stuff's been going on. And recently they named a new Speaker of the House who is does anybody, Paul, Paul Ryan. Pray for Paul Ryan. You know, he's in that position. Uh, I don't know what your politics are and I don't really care. That's at the point here. But what I found interesting is I was reading the newspaper and he's using all this language like, we want to clean this house. And you know what he did last week, which was interesting, is he... He went out in the lobby leading to his office. There's a portrait of Dennis Hastert, former Speaker of the House, but he'd become involved in scandal. And he says, we're taking that portrait down because we don't want that to represent us anymore. And I thought, well, that's, that's cool. You know, I mean, all the power to him. I hope it works out. One thing I know we can all agree to is that sometimes the house needs to be clean. Sometimes our house needs to be clean. Sometimes we need some scrubbing in our neighborhood and we need some scrubbing in our soul. Sometimes we need some scrubbing even in our church. And in Jesus' day, he was dealing with the temple being unclean. The temple was unethical. The temple was having problems with morality and what was going on there with the Jewish religious leaders. And so today, he's going to, looking at the temple as God's house, he's going to clean house. That's what it's about. And it ties into our new sermon series because we're now moving into this new time where Jesus is going to express what we're calling holy irritation. Jesus ever get irritated? He gets irritated because he spends over three years trying to teach these guys about what's right. And the Jewish religious leaders as a whole, you know, there are individuals that listen, but as a whole, they don't, they don't even come an inch in his direction. They aren't looking at reform. They're not listening to him. They're just angry with him. And he has an irritation, but it's, it's not a sinful irritation. It's a holy irritation. And he ex begins to express it. He sets up shop, as we're going to see this week in the temple area, and then he begins to sort of debate these guys and take them on. And it's very interesting. And I think we'll all enjoy it and learn from it. Today is the one that starts it all off, and we're going to see that Jesus cleans God's house based on Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. We're going to read that to you, Luke 19, 45 through 48. And it reads, Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, 
But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet he, they could not find a way, any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So Jesus cleans the house. Pretty short and simple, but there's a lot of stuff there. First thing we see is that he drives out the merchants. And we start with that important word, then. We say, well, when did this happen? What was going on? What's kind of the background to this experience? If we go back to the previous passages in the, in the beginning of this chapter, we go back to where we were last week in Jericho, where he is training a man by the name of Zacchaeus to be a follower. And right after that, he gives the parable of the ten minas that Joey spoke on a few weeks ago in our parable, in our series on parables. And then, after he does that, he heads over to Jerusalem, about 12 miles away. Can you feel the baby? Yeah, pretty good. We've got a pregnant mama here. Pretty soon we're going to have a baby. Um, and so he's, you know, this is a, a time, it's a, it's a long hike up to Jerusalem. And once he gets up there, he goes apparently to Bethany because you couldn't stay in Jerusalem if it was Passover week, you know, it was a big holiday. Jerusalem wasn't that big and it would pack out and there wasn't enough room so people would stay sort of like in the outskirts. And so he stayed in Bethany, it appears overnight. Who lived in Bethany? You remember? We talked about this too. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And it seems every time that he would go, he would stay in Bethany. We have at least three records of him doing that. We have two whole chapters talking about his relationship with them. In his last visit there, he had raised their brother Lazarus from the dead. And you can bet people were still talking about that. Now Jesus is up in Bethany, and he actually dropped down. It was a descent into Mount Zion and into Jerusalem. And he was supposed to be just entering for the first day, you know, Sunday, the first day of the week for them, you know, where they would celebrate the first day of the Passover week, where they would celebrate together. But when he came in, people got excited, and it turned into his triumphal entry, and they began laying down palm branches and made a makeshift carpet for him. And so we also call it what? Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday takes place, and this is when this is happening. And when it says then, it appears that right after he was celebrating in the streets with everybody, he went right into the temple. But the word then, you know, can be even months later. There are some examples in the Bible where it says then, and then they pass to a few months later. So we say exactly when did this happen? Did it happen on Palm Sunday, or did it happen at another time, or do we even know? But we do know because Mark tells us. And Mark says, in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, he says it was the next day. In fact, Mark chapter 11, verse 11, and Matthew chapter 21, verse 17, says that he went back to Bethany. It makes it very clear that he was staying in Bethany. So he went back to Bethany that night, and then he came back the next day. The next day, Monday, um, he came back for the event that we're looking at today. And the stage was set for what he was about to do. Now, sometimes in understanding this stuff, we, we just don't have enough information. And what's really cool with the four gospels is it's like looking at four sides of a house. And everyone gives a different perspective. They all see the same house. They never contradict each other, but they all see different perspectives. And we can learn from each of them. Just as you, we learn from different people can speak on the same passage and they'll say the same thing in general, but they'll have different perspectives and different things that they bring to it. And so we can learn from the different gospel accounts. John is interesting because in John chapter 2, he tells the same story, but it's really different. And as we look at it closely, we realize that Jesus did this before. This is the second time he cleanses the temple. A little bit different last time. 
but he's already told them that what they're doing is wrong. Now, flash forward about three years later, and we're where we're at now. And we're going to borrow from some of the other guys who give a little bit more of the details. So just so you know, we'll, um, we'll borrow today from Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 16, and Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. And they'll help us out to help us see what's happening here a little bit more. So they're in the temple area. The temple area is sometimes called the, um, it, it is called the, in those days, it was called the court of the Gentiles. So a Gentile is a non-Jew. Just like if you go to Mexico, you might be called a gringo. If you go to Hawaii, you might be called a Holly. You know, I mean, they, the, the Gentiles were not part of the Jewish culture. And they were not, they didn't believe in the same God usually. But for those that did, anybody that was a Gentile could come into this massive structure. I mean, this was one of the wonders of the world. And they would come in and there were acres out in front, which was to be the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And these guys come in and this was where they would come to this temple area. So they come into this temple area. Um, and then as they get there, what they find is people are selling. In the original Greek text, it says that they're selling and buying. And both words are important because selling means that they were bartering. You know, they, were, they weren't just, it wasn't straight up. They were kind of bartering with people over what they had. And buying is, comes from the Greek word agora, from which they get for a marketplace. So they're walking into this large outer court before they go into this huge temple. And they're not allowed in if they're not um, Jewish. And in this whole big area of worship, they're seeing all this business going. It looks just like a marketplace in the streets. Why? Why were they doing that? Well, there actually were some practical reasons why. Because in those days, you would have to sacrifice your animals at the Passover. And that was part of it, is the ritual sacrifices that you would make. So you'd have to bring your animals, but you couldn't transport them in your trailer. You didn't have a truck that you could bring it on up with. Some of the animals could die on the way, and the, the crowd, you get crowded in the walkways and so forth. It became very difficult and impractical to do that. So they provided animals for you to purchase and sacrifice. They also required you to make a half shekel tax, to pay the half shekel tax to pay for the temple. But that was paid in a shekel, which is Jewish currency. And a lot of the people had Roman and Greek currency, so they would exchange your money for you. But they would put a you know, they had an exchange rate and they would charge you extra money. And guess who got the money that was extra? The chief priest's family would get it. Now, in and of itself, this wasn't a bad thing. They were just trying to be helpful. But what started off as maybe a nice thing on their part had gotten out of control. And they were overcharging these guys for their animals and they had no place else to go. And then they were attaching this this money to, to, the, to the exchange rate, they were cheating them. And they were doing it in this place that's supposed to be a place of worship. So Jesus addresses the issue. And what he says um, is, he, he says, he quotes from two passages of scripture and he goes to the Old Testament. What he's doing, he's acting very much like a prophet. That's what prophets do, right? Prophets say, this is what God says you should do and this is what you're not doing. So he quotes from two places. He goes to Isaiah chapter 56, verse seven. And Isaiah in that passage is talking about how the Gentiles will one day come to God's temple and they'll worship in the court of the Gentiles and they'll worship God. Godly Gentiles will come and worship. And he says that it's to be called a house of prayer for all nations. And that's what Jesus is alluding to. And he says, this is the house of prayer for all nations. 
doesn't look like it to me. This doesn't look anything like a house of prayer, like it was supposed to be for the Gentiles. And then he goes to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, where Jeremiah gives a scathing sermon against the Jewish religious leaders of his day, calling them essentially false prophets. And he says, you know, you've made this temple a den, and the word could be a cave, for robbers. And literally what he's talking about is terrorists in those days. The terrorists go out and they pillage the land and they come in and they hide in their cave with all their stuff. He says, you've gone out there and you've you know, wreaked havoc and then you come back in and you make this house worse than the world outside. You make it just like it. You bring in all your garbage with it. You've, you've polluted this place. And that's not what God wanted. So he really, he really lets them have it. He's, he's really pretty strong on what he says here. Um, and so then Jesus you know, drives them out for these reasons. He drives them out first, but those are the reasons why. How did he drive them out? Matthew Mark says he was actually turning over tables and he was knocking over benches. I mean, he was a carpenter. He had physical labor. Uh, Isaiah tells us there's nothing about Jesus that stands out. He wasn't supposed to be a particularly attractive man. Um, there wasn't anything that you would say you know, about him. He was just kind of an average guy that would fit in the crowd. And yet there was something you know, very powerful about his presence and his countenance, no doubt. But he was a physical man. And he just starts tossing these things. But he wasn't angry, right? Do you think that Jesus might have been angry on this occasion? I, I think, I think he, he was. The, I mean, he wasn't whistling whistle while you work. Okay, he wasn't, he wasn't kind of smiling, going, oh, da, 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 this is fun. You know, he was ticked off, I think. He'd had enough after three years. He said, this is enough. This is bad stuff. You guys get out. If you want to sell it, sell it outside the walls, not in here. And he chases them off. Do you think Jesus is a little violent here? I think he's a little violent too. In fact, you could say in the first century that they could have called him for being blasphemous for doing what he did. You didn't take over the whole temple like that and do it in a violent fashion. Does it kind of rock your theology a little bit to think that Jesus had a temper and that he could be a little violent? That's kind of different from what you're used to hearing. It's reality. Understand this, anger is an emotion. Violence is a behavior, amoral, neither right nor wrong. Depends how you use it. If you use it for abuse, it's always wrong. If you use it for protection, it's right. And Jesus is using it, in this case, in a good sense. Um, because he's trying to help people to see that what they're doing is truly, truly wrong. Now, it goes on from there, and, um, and we see uh, that he goes into the temple, and he starts, you know, he's in the temple, and we see that he cleanses God's house with God's teaching. What he does after he gets them out, the cleansing part really isn't that he sent everybody out. The cleansing part is what he does afterwards. He starts teaching about God. You know, the best way to combat error is to teach the truth. So he sits down and he says, this is the truth, guys. This is what God really is all about. This is who he really is. This is what you really should do. This is what you're missing. And he begins to teach them and engage them. And he has an impact. And the Jewish religious leaders, are they happy? They're not happy, are they? 
they're not happy because they've lost a lot of what? Money. And they've lost a lot of pride. This is humiliating that these guys have taken over in front of every, uh, them, and in front of all the people. And they're teaching this stuff that they still don't want to give way on. Now, there were three people that are introduced to us here. One, the chief priest. One, the teachers of the law. And two, and three, um, we have those that are generally called leaders. And those are the three groups of people that would make up the ruling party, the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was like their house of representatives, their Congress. And of those people, the chief priests were usually called the Sadducees, and the teachers were usually Pharisees. And the Sadducees and Pharisees absolutely hated each other and wouldn't work with each other in almost anything. But it did bring them unity, didn't it? Isn't it crazy how sometimes things like that can pull bad guys together? So they pull together and they say, we want to take care of him. I thought it was interesting that the word for kill is not really accurate. They were not seeking to kill him, necessarily. The word could be rendered destroy, but it's hard to explain. The basic idea is they're saying, we want to eliminate him any way we can. Uh, and we'll, we don't know what to do because he's so popular and everybody's around him. So we'll start by trying to debate him and expose him for the false prophet that we believe he is. We'll embarrass him and he'll leave with his tail between his legs and we've won. But if we can find any other way, we'll take it. And do they get another way? They find that they have an opportunity to kill him and they say, great, we'll go ahead and do that. And that's what they do. What Jesus does here sort of is the last straw for them. It's the thing that kind of pushes them over the top and makes them decide that we've got to get rid of this guy some way. Now, I thought about this and I started making observations and kind of working through this in my head. And I, at first, it seems like sort of a simple passage. But when you look at it closely, there's a lot there. There's a lot of different things that are touched upon. One of the first things that stood out to me in church, for example, is that our church should not be a marketplace. And I thought, well, our church isn't a building, right? It isn't. Jesus says that the temple, we are now God's temple. Because when a person comes into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them. And we become God's temple. But when we, representing God's temple, come together to worship God, we still should not resemble a marketplace. And can worship ever seem more like a worldly endeavor than us giving honor and glory and praise to our Lord? Some of the things we do aren't necessarily bad. They're practical and they're good, but they can take over. Fundraising can be a good thing. But, you know, sometimes it almost seems like, you know, I, I just be honest, I, I, you, you get into a situation where you go to a church and it's almost like a performance upstage. And they're putting on a show and people, you know, have guest speaker, singers, and then the guy comes up and speaks and he has all these clever things he's trying to do and entertain. And then, you know, you have, you go out and all these people have their wares that they're selling you and they're raising money for this and that and they have all these announcements. And you can almost forget that you're there to worship God. And you're thinking more about, what am I going to buy afterwards? And boy, what event do I want to be part of? And boy, this is fun. And you know, what a great group, that, what a great band they have. They're as good as any band I've heard anywhere lately. Nice compliment, but that's not what it's all about. I really appreciate how Mitch leads us in worship, that our focus is on God. 
and we want that to be our focus. So I thought that was interesting. The other one that really hit me is anger. Anger is a difficult one um, because we tend to say, in our culture today, we tend to think that Jesus never became angry. We, different times, cultures emphasize one or the other, and the truth is we tend to, to go to extremes. Either it's all, you know, Jesus is, you know, we're angry, or we're, you know, we're milk toast. <laughs> and there is a place for anger, but where do you figure that out? I thought, when is anger all right? I thought about it, I said, rarely. It's not something you do all the time. You don't wear it on your sleeve. Jesus got angry. There are two recorded times where he got really angry. I could probably list maybe three or four other times where it seems like he got a little angry. It was, you know, he got angry. He was in an emotional culture and he expressed his passion. But he didn't, you know, it wasn't something he did all the time. It wasn't on a regular everyday basis. And so it's something that we need to really think about before we do and make sure that we're following what God wants. Sometimes we use it, and Jesus uses it here, notice, partly for motivation. Partly to say, you guys have really messed up. I want you to understand what you've done wrong so that you will change. And pastors can do that, and they get up and say, what are you guys doing? You've got to turn it around. Yeah, blah, blah, you know, and, and people go, whoa, whoa, maybe I should. Maybe that, that kind of hits me. Coaches do that. Coaches are great at doing that. They're great at overdoing it, right? And pastors can get to the point where they overdo it. And when you overdo it, after a while, people say, well, that's just what he says. I'm used to this. And it loses its meaning. So it shouldn't be something you do all the time, but there may be times when you need to do that. Um, I thought about discussions you have on a tough topic. You ever have like a really tough topic and you have to resolve it? And you get people huddled in a room and they've got to come out of that room making a decision? Like, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis. I bet those guys weren't all shaking hands and laughing and telling stories. I, I bet there was emotion expressed. When we have our meetings, we, we allow for that. You know, Patrick Lencioni in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Church, of a church, could be a church of any organization, he says, of leadership. He says, one of the things you look for is people that are able to express themselves openly and freely to each other. If you have a group of people, men or women, and you say you cannot express yourselves because you can't get upset, then you're not going to get honesty. When we meet as pastors, one of the rules is the doors are locked, the windows are closed, share whatever you feel like sharing, just don't be mean. And if somebody says something wrong and when we're all done, we make sure we go around the room, everybody okay, everybody okay. We have to make a decision. Sometimes it's emotional. And then we lock arms and we walk out. It's okay to be that way. That's, that's being human. You don't want to deny yourself and be fake. If you can't do that, how are you going to ever express it? You're going to have to walk around and circumnavigate, right? And that's when you get into all sorts of trouble. That's called passive aggression. And so you have to be careful about that. Um, I think sometimes to protect others. I mean, sometimes we're angry because we're protecting another person. When I was a boy growing up, I had younger sisters, identical twins, and my dad always said, take care of them. Don't let any man touch them. You're the man. Take care of your little sisters. They're three years younger than me. I mean, he used to tell me this from the time I was a little kid. I was indoctrinated. Uh, take care of those sisters. I understand it more now as a dad of a daughter. But he would always say, watch your sisters. Watch over your sisters. Nobody touches your sisters, you know. So one time, 
my, I was a senior, my sister was a freshman, and she was in a play at school, and they had a party afterwards. So I went to the party to pick her up, and as I was picking her up, one of the boys walks over and gives her a kiss on the cheek. I grabbed him and threw him up against the wall. I said, what are you doing? It's my sister. My sister was just mortified, you know. We, we, so that's carrying it too far, you know. But I just reacted, you know. I mean, not, you're not supposed to do that. Dad's going to be upset. Um, so uh, you can carry it too far, right? But there is a time and place for that. There is a time and place for that. My dad used to always say that to you. He says, there's a time and place for everything. Um, and I hope, and I trust that if anybody would harm one of yours, that you would be there to protect them. And that would be biblical. And that's why we have a lot of things in the Old Testament. Sometimes you have to stand up and protect people. So you look at this. Jesus was not a wimpy flower child. That is an absolute horrible description of Jesus. Jesus was also not the macho hero warrior. That is a horrible description of Jesus. Jesus, like so often, found the balance between the two extremes. He was reasonable and he was slow to anger. But when the time came, he stood up for what was right. Jesus was violent on this occasion and he will be violent when he comes again. That's how it is. Violence is not wrong, you know. And mothers, you know, a lot of times moms will say, I don't want my, my little boy to play, play with fake guns. You know, well, they'll go get a carrot and start shooting each other. You know, boys, for some strange reason, boys are just, I mean, that's the way God made guys. They're going to be more protective. Now, I've seen women that are more dangerous than men, you know, watching their kids. You know, you get a, you get a mama, you know, bear upset with her cubs. She's dangerous. It's the same thing. We just need to take care of each other. But let's understand that, Violence is not always wrong. And my, a supreme example of that is World War II. If our grandpas and great-grandpas and so forth hadn't fought in that war and done what they did, we may not be here today. There's a time and place for things. And it's always the last resort. But sometimes it has to be done. So it's some good lessons there. Now there's the flip side of this, and that is when is anger not all right? When you're known for it? When everybody says, oh, yeah, he has a quick temper. And it can be crazy. Like, I knew, I knew a pastor once. And I've been in ministry a long time, so I've seen a lot of crazy stuff. But I knew a pastor. He used to get up all the time, and he'd say, you know, I, I have this bad temper. And then he'd tell these stories about what he did. And then he'd say, but you know me. That's just the way I am. What's that just the way you are? You know, it's just like, well, you know me. You know, I went out, and I got drunk last night. Just the way I am. I just shot up last night. I... Just shot another person. You know how I like to do that. I'm like, it'd be my, that assassin instinct. You know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't just do that. You know what I'm saying? You know, so you, we all are going to have problems. We all have our issues, you know, things that we struggle with. But we need to be improving and growing in them. And if a person has a problem with anger, there's places in the Proverbs that says, don't even hang out with a person like that. Anger is a serious issue, and so we need to make sure that we get it under control. There's also, if you notice that I keep saying anger, I never have said yet that they lost his temper. It's two different things. A person who's angry is in control of what they're doing. They know what they're doing. A person who's lost their temper is someone who has no idea what they're doing. They're, they become irrational. You know, they, they're just, man, they're, they just go nuts. 
It's an adult temper tantrum. Anybody can do it. I saw, I, saw once, I saw a pastor get mad and start pounding a desk and his face turned purple. He had the veins popping out and he's screaming. Now, we all have bad hair days. We can always forgive. But that kind of behavior is not defendable. It's inexcusable. We don't go there. See, you see the difference? And it can happen even to me. You know, any one of us can have that bad hair day. That should not define us, and it should happen. It should hardly ever happen. You know, it's kind of one of those things that are a blip on the radar in your life. If that's happening, then you need some help. Uh, come and talk to us. Uh, we can set you up. There's some great counselors in town and so forth. It's, it's as serious a problem as a lot of the other things we talk about. We start talking about drugs and alcohol and things like that. It's a serious problem that needs to be dealt with. Because I tell you, if it isn't, what happens is the worst thing is when people like that begin bullying people that are indefensible. And let me be real clear on this because I don't know if there's anybody here that's in this situation. When a husband beats up his wife and when parents abuse their child. Okay, let's, let's be... Be clear, I, I don't know who I'm talking about it because I don't know if, if you're doing it, you're doing it behind closed doors. But I'm telling you now that that is absolutely reprehensible. Absolutely reprehensible. I'll tell you, I'm an old man, but if I could, I'd whip you myself. You deserve to be whipped. But God is a God of grace and forgiveness. Nevertheless, you need to get it right with him today on this side of eternity because it's never good to be in the hands of an angry God. All right? So serious business. Don't hurt people like that. God is the one who will actually hold you accountable in the end. And that'll be worse than what anybody else could do. So make it right. He's also a God who forgives, and we're people that forgive. There's nothing you've done that can't be forgiven, but it needs to be confessed so that we can begin to work with it and, and bring healing and, and something good out of what is bad. Uh, finally, it's really important to teach the truth. We try to do that every Sunday. We talk about what the Bible says. There's something really powerful about what the Bible says. It, it pulls people in. And it, it, Have you ever noticed that? It's, just, it's not even who the person is, who the speaker is, but when the speaker speaks what the Bible says, and we just read the Bible on our own, there's this power in the Word of God. And so we need to always keep that front and center. A couple applications for you today. What needs cleansing in your life? It's your soul. Does your soul need cleansing? Some of the things we talked about today, are, did anything strike a chord? Is there anything that you need to clean up? You need to spend some time in prayer, um, spend some time with the Lord, maybe come and talk to us and we can help you work through some things. Is it, is it your family? If we were to walk into your house, would it feel like this is a place where people that love the Lord live? Or would it just seem like any other house on the block? If we look through your cupboards, watch the kind of things that you, the, most of what you like to watch, your movies and stuff, what would that tell us about you? You know what I'm saying? Does your family spend time praying together? Do they ever, you read, read Bible stories to the kids? You guys get together and talk about the Lord? And if not, then now's the time to, to begin cleansing. Maybe it's your neighborhood that needs cleansing. You need to get out there and build relationships. Tell people about your relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, God puts 
eight to 15 people into our life. You can't solve the world, but you can look at the people in your neighborhood, in your life, in your family, and minister to them. Who are those people, and how can you minister to them? Or how about work? Maybe you're a boss, and you need to fire somebody. That's a horrible thing to do. And you don't want to do it because of the backlash. But sometimes it needs to be done, and Jesus' example is a good example for that today. Or maybe you have a job and you need to take a stand and you could lose your job. I have seen grown men cry with the threat of having to lose their job. But you know what? We have brothers and sisters in Christ who perhaps even at this moment are losing their lives, are being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we need to take those stands for what's right. And we need to be able to, and we do it in an appropriate way. We always do it in a nice way. We always do it in a long-suffering way. We don't do it with our fists clenched. But we, we take stands for what is right because we love people and because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, it could even be the church. And we want to leave open doors of communication always with our church because if there's ever a problem with us, usually, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times you're the last to see it. So it's good to have other people come and speak to us. So we want to hear you. And uh, we always want to leave that door open because we want to keep ourselves as clean as we can be. Here's the second question. How's your AQ? What do I mean by your AQ? Your anger quota. Do you have a bad temper? Do you lose your temper every day, say? Or at least once a week? Do you yell at the kids? You know, and kick the wall or whatever? Ever put your fist through the wall? If you have, I think you're probably having some anger issues. And that's something to be honest with and to think through, because that needs to get under control. On the other hand, are you the other extreme where you never speak up for anything, and you're always afraid of what other people are going to think about you, and you just kind of enable them to do bad things, rather than standing up and saying, I think that's wrong. You see the balance? You may need to come one way or come the other way, depending on what God is doing in your life. And finally, how can you teach the truth if you don't know it? So we have to know our Bibles. The starting place for us is coming regularly to the church. And more important than that, reading your Bible, reading it every day. You know, we've got the Daily Bread. It's a great devotional guide. You can read through that, get you started. You can read through passages of Scripture. Read a verse and just memorize that verse all week long until you've got it down. And think about what it's teaching you and how you can apply that to your life. And get into a small group where you can continue to do that. And, and with all these things, you can always come and talk to us, and we'd love to talk to you about that. Jesus' um, ultimate call in this passage is for all the nations to come and worship God. And by him taking the authority, you know, exercising his authority to clean the house, and by him ultimately rising from the dead, he makes it clear who God is. He's the God that they should come and worship. Are you worshiping him yet? Do you know him? If you don't, you can. Uh, you need to admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and rose again. And choose to follow Christ and place your faith in him alone. And if you haven't done that, we encourage you to. Come and talk to us about it. And we would love to help instruct you on that incredible journey of knowing Jesus and experience his grace and his love 
as well as his strength to stand up for what's right in this world. So we encourage you in that. All right. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that you are a God of grace, but also a God of justice. This passage speaks of you standing very strong, um, Jesus, in a very difficult situation. Pray that you give us the courage and strength to do those kinds of things when we need to, um, and to know that you ultimately set all things right in heaven, where we will rejoice forever um, in our relationship with you. Pray that those that, don't, that do not yet know you would come to know you as well, that they might experience that relationship with you for eternity as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.